Welcome to the Old Testament Reading Podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today we're wrapping up all the jumping around we've been doing in Leviticus before moving on to the book of Numbers. We're focusing on Leviticus 24, along with Numbers 6, then Numbers 10 through 13. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. And if questions come up during the course of your reading, please ask them at bit dot ly slash ask hyphen ot that's bit dot ly slash capital a lowercase sk hyphen capital o capital t now this week at stake in our reading is the idea the issue of power and trust who holds the power who can we trust? Are God's people willing to share power with one another and with God? Are God's people willing to trust God, even when that's a very difficult thing to ask of them? Or perhaps, would God's people prefer to hoard power and authority? Would they prefer to be the ones in charge? Now, this is not a question that stops with the people of Israel. It's a question we need to answer in our own lives as well. So we begin with the final chapter from Leviticus in this portion of the reading plan. As I mentioned over the last couple of weeks, we're going to revisit all these chapters we've skipped over when we get to the end of the plan. At this point, instead of looking at the around 50 chapters that detail right worship and right behavior uh, toward the end of Exodus throughout Leviticus and uh, in the beginning of Numbers, uh, we're going to be uh, focused more strictly on narrative uh, and skipping over some of this right worship, right behavior, and genealogy, tribal leader stuff. We'll get some of that, but we're going to skip over it for now. Leviticus 24 gives background for a few laws and practices that will be helpful as we continue to read. I think particularly the bread of the presence uh, is going to be a helpful law to have in mind when we get into the story of David in 2 Samuel. And we'll see in that story that there's going to be some caveats to this law. Excuse me, I said 2 Samuel. I believe that's actually in 1 Samuel. However, we also see in Leviticus 24 that the Israelite who profanes the name of the Lord actually demonstrates that there are no caveats to the third commandment. Uh, there is no, uh, there should be no confusion about this. The third commandment is absolute. In fact, this story is likely the genesis for why modern-day Jews often choose not even to write the name of God. They'll often put a hyphen between the G and the D. You'll see this if you uh, look at some writing online um, that, that many, many modern-day uh, practitioners of Judaism will not write the word God. Additionally, instead of using the proper name of God, Y-H-W-H, which we often pronounce Yahweh, readers, Jewish readers of Scripture, will substitute the name Adonai, meaning Lord, for the divine name. They'll sometimes substitute the word Hashem, which means the name. Now, while no mortal can damage God, like we're pretty clear about this, we can't do damage to an infinite, all-powerful being, we can damage God's reputation by dragging the name of the Lord through the mud or, or through profaning it. This is so offensive, and there is very little restitution for it that it merits the death penalty. However, all other harm that's done in between people that hurts relationships, well, there are grounds for repayment there, for restitution. This is, this is where the famous eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law of retribution comes from. And I want you to note that this is a limit to the retribution, not a requirement. This is the maximum possible punishment. Even in this, God offers grace. 
However, this law does apply to all people within the camp, whether native-born or foreigner. In other words, ignorance is no excuse. Just because you haven't grown up with this law doesn't mean that you can remain ignorant of it. So after this chapter, we now enter into the book of Numbers. And I think that Numbers often gets a bad rap because of its name and because of how it begins. Uh, Its name conjures up genealogies, censuses, and not a lot of narrative, which is just not a fair assessment of its content at all. Uh, It has um, much more of a miscellaneous grouping of content than many of the other books in the Pentateuch or in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It begins, though, with several chapters of genealogies, uh, which is all that most folks see of numbers when they go through it in a reading plan, because then they skip the rest. Um, In Hebrew, though, this scroll is called Bemidbar, which means in the wilderness. And I think that's a much fairer assessment of its content, which uh, picks up where Exodus left off right around chapter 10 or 11. Throughout Numbers, we'll see God's people in many different circumstances, and some of these circumstances appear similar to events in Exodus. I think this shows us, uh, after a conversation I was having with uh, my friend Jeannie, uh, who's a retired pastor earlier this week, I think this shows us that uh, there's, there's a tension with how people of good faith can interpret different stories, that, that some people may interpret them one way, like we see in the story of the manna and the quail in Exodus, whereas when we see the manna and the quail... Uh, Later on in Numbers, it's interpreted very differently, and we can hold this tension that God's Spirit provides these different interpretations, and and that we don't need to stick just with one as sort of a canonical interpretation. But we'll, we'll be able to see in each circumstance that one of the questions the narrative is interested in asking is whether God's people will trust God, and what happens if they don't. So we'll begin in in chapter 6. Chapter 6 contains all the details of the Nazarite vow, as well as the priestly blessing. Now, I I, want to make a caveat here. A a Nazarite, one who takes the Nazarite vow, is not to be confused with a Nazarene, one who is born in Nazareth. Uh, Oftentimes, Jesus is called a Nazarene because he was born in Nazareth. That does not mean that he took the vow of the Nazarite. We'll revisit the Nazarite vow when we get to the story of Samson in the book of Judges, but what I want you to notice now is the nature of this vow. This is not something one simply does because you feel like it. While there's some overlap between Nazarite expectations and priestly expectations, the strictness with which the Nazarite vows are held is quite exceptional and requires deep devotion uh, and and, and continued um, focus and discipline. It's possible that other ancient Near Eastern communities and peoples had similar ways of expressing devotion and that the Nazarite vow was included in the law as one avenue for the Hebrews also to have such a practice. That through detailing precisely how the Hebrew people could devote themselves to God, the Nazarite vow offered structure. It regulated expectations and made it so that uh, you wouldn't have a bunch of different ways that the Hebrew people would offer their own devotion to God. Now, at the end of number six, we have this priestly blessing that uh, uh, is proclaimed over Aaron and his sons. And I love this priestly blessing. I regularly use it as a benediction. I love the history behind this blessing, how it's been used in communities of faith for over 3,000 years. And I think it gets at the hope of our faith, that God wouldn't look upon us with a righteous frown, but with joy, with welcome, with grace. We see in this blessing the grace that's been promised to Israel, a grace that doesn't begin 
with Jesus, but begins as far back as the Pentateuch. It's this grace that allows the people of Israel to trust that the God who delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the God who calls, not, who doesn't self-identify just as I am, but I am the Lord your God. It's this grace that allows the people of Israel to trust that while God's power isn't at their beck and call, God's power will be used for Israel's ultimate shalom, Israel's ultimate wholeness and peace. four chapters that we read in Numbers that Hebrews finally depart from Mount Sinai. They've been in the shadow of this mountain of God for 57 chapters now, longer than the entire book of Genesis. They've received instruction for how to love God and love neighbor, and now they get to depart for the promised land using what they've learned along the way. I'm sure there won't be any hiccups, right? Now, now, triumphantly, eagerly, the Israelites set off from Sinai with trumpets, with celebration. They've been equipped to live holy lives, they're God's own people. And, and Moses is so excited for what God is going to do through the children of Israel that he invites a family member, Hobab, to join them, promising good favor and God's blessings to him if he accompanies them. Now, there are a few questions that immediately come up here. Who is this Hobab? Is he the same person as Jethro and Royel? Uh, is he Moses' father-in-law? Or maybe he's the son of Royel, um, as it says. So the son of Moses' father-in-law, making him Moses' brother-in-law? Another question was astutely noted by Paulette W., uh, who, who put this question uh, in the Google form, asking, if God leads the Israelites with a cloud and fire, well, why did Moses ask Hobab to stay and not leave them since he knew the best places to camp? Well, one way of thinking about this question, and thank you for the question, Paulette, is maybe that God's pillar of cloud and fire served as the Israelites' GPS, acting as, as sort of a general maps or navigation app to lead them to their final destination, and, and didn't specifically note the places that they needed to, to sleep uh, each night. Perhaps Hobab works more like Hotels.com or Priceline or Expedia, one of these websites that gives you some of the best rates of, of the hotels in a given area. He's able to find perhaps safe places for the Israelites camp nearby the pillar of cloud and the fire while they travel. For the larger route, in other words, the Israelites depend on God's guidance. For the particulars of finding a safe place, they depend on human experience. I think this is a tension that we regularly have to weigh as well. To what degree are we going to lean into our own strengths, trusting that God will provide uh, for us through how God has given us gifts and talents? And to what degree are we going to listen for God's voice, waiting to hear where God's going to lead us? I think that um, some of this tension is, is wrapped up in, in what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.17, that we've been thoroughly equipped as servants of God for every good work. Does this mean that God will tell us what good works to do? Does this mean that God will, will vocally speak to us? Does this mean that we need to trust uh, our own uh, understanding and discernment of God? It's tricky. But every decision we make as we navigate through this life, we're going to go back and forth through listening for God's voice uh, through other people and listening for God's voice through how God has already equipped us. In any case, the children of Israel begin. They set out on their journey from Sinai. We're immediately introduced to one of the distinctive patterns in Numbers. 
members of the community start stirring up dissension against Moses and his leadership. Often, these troublemakers don't go directly against God. They're, they're too smart for that. They're too politically savvy. But it's clear in how they bring up their critique that they're not interested in a fair assessment of the situation. They're much more like children throwing a tantrum. They want what they want, and until they get hit, they're going to pitch a fit. And this begs the question, do they trust that God and that Moses want what's best for them? And I imagine that for these troublemakers, the answer is no. I think we see this most particularly in how the troublemakers selectively frame and remember their past life in Egypt. They talk about slavery in these glowing terms that they got to eat fish without cost. And like, okay, let's, let's be clear here. You were paying a cost. And, and it was for freedom that God has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. And, and when folks talk about slavery in such glowing terms, clearly we're not having a good faith conversation. We're not trying to, to find truth here. We have one uh, group of people that <laughs> is subscribed to a different sense of reality than another group. Now, okay, to be clear, there's a time and a place for constructive feedback and critique. These are things that good leaders should welcome. But if we as followers find ourselves gathering allies in order to usurp a leader and gain power for ourselves, we can be relatively certain we are not on the side of God. God is a, a, a models consistently and reliably giving power away. We can compare the, the behavior of these troublemakers uh, to Moses in the same chapter, where Moses pleads with God, this people is too heavy for me, lighten my load, it's too much of a burden. Moses is interested in sharing leadership, in giving away power. And Moses doesn't tell God, hey, I don't want you to pick any of these people who disagree with me. Moses just says, God, help me, lighten my load. And we can see clearly here the difference between rabble-rousing, which is what the troublemakers are doing, and leading. To lead a community is to suffer with those who suffer, to agonize over the community's well-being. Moses wants to share this power so that he's got additional people to, uh, that he can trust to help him lead, whereas the troublemakers want to seize power so that they uh, don't have to share it with men like Moses. Even Joshua, Moses' protege, seems uncomfortable with the egalitarian nature of God's spirit descending upon these 70 additional elders. Uh, perhaps he's concerned that this will foment more rebellion and distrust. Maybe he's not interested in sharing his own power. Whatever the reason, after these 70 additional elders are given authority, after Moses um, and, and Joshua have this conversation about whether they should silence the, the two uh, charismatic prophets that are hanging out around the camp, uh, after Moses tells Joshua, no, we shouldn't silence the Spirit of God, after all these things happen, hordes of quail appear as an answer to the Israelites' plea for meat. The story of the quail reminds us that we don't always know what it is we actually want. There are things we think we want that we think are blessings that when we actually get them, 
turn out to be maybe one of the worst things that we could get. We see this in uh, when we track lottery winners over the course of years after they've won the lottery. Lottery winners have like an astronomically higher rate of suicide and, and even of homicide, of, of mental illness, of, of tragedy. They've got a huge percentage more likelihood for that to happen to them than they did before they won the lottery. What we sometimes think is a blessing of, of much more money and means sometimes turns out to be a curse. And, and this is the case uh, with the, the quail. We see uh, this phenomenon as many of the children of Israel die with quail between their teeth. It's this grotesque image of either them choking on the quail or maybe being struck down because they, they had diseased quail or, or maybe something more supernatural, whatever it is. Uh, the, the point is clear, I think. When our faith directs us toward the blessings rather than toward the God who blesses, the blessings we end up receiving often turn to ashes. Because if, if our faith is directed toward God, God's going to give us every blessing, everything we need. But when we are obsessed about a certain blessing and that distracts us from God, well, then that blessing has become an idol. Power and trust can be this idol, and power and trust come to the forefront once again when Miriam and Aaron rise up against Moses. Their complaint, much like the complaint of the troublemakers, uh, the chapter before, is not made in good faith. Their complaint is twofold. Uh, they complain not only against the authority they assert Moses is hoarding, which turns out he's not. He just appointed 70 elders upon whom the Spirit of God had descended and shared his authority. But they also complain against his Cushite wife. And let's take a moment with this. Uh, scholars aren't quite sure where Cush is located. There's some thought that this wife might be Zipporah, um, and Cush and Midian might be overlapping areas. Cush might also be a synonym for Ethiopia, in which case uh, Moses' wife may be a second wife taken along with Sephora, and this wife might be darker of skin color. There's a chance that the complaint might be racial in, in character, and um, whatever the case, it's likely that this, this wife would have darker skin than the Israelites. Um, and it's fascinating to see that the racism we struggle with today uh, can possibly be traced back even to the time of Moses. Whatever the reason for this, uh, and, and uh, one, one more caveat, to be clear, this racism is, is a different type of racism than the racism we've inherited in America, which is based off of robbing people from their homeland and treating them as objects, as chattel, as slaves. Uh, so so th this is more a history of discrimination against those who look differently than we do, more than it is a history of American slavery. Um, with that caveat out of the way, uh, God takes Miriam and Aaron for their ill-faith complaint to task. And it's this chapter that contains one of the passages that leads scholars to believe Moses likely did not write the first five books of the Bible. See, because in this chapter, it's claimed that Moses is the humblest man on the face of the earth. Now, 
if you're really the humblest person on the face of the earth, you probably won't write that you're the humblest person on the face of the earth. That's not a claim that you'd make. Uh, however, uh, his actions show that there's some merit to this claim. He immediately intercedes on Miriam's behalf, wanting God to heal her instead of wanting her to suffer from the skin disease uh, that's sent to her after she uh, rebels against Moses in this way. He doesn't feel the need to, to hold his authority over her and, and, and over Aaron. Uh, but, but whatever the case here, it's likely that he didn't write this um, because the humblest person doesn't brag about being the humblest person. Now, finally, uh, in the final chapter uh, in this week, the Israelites arrive at the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey. Hooray! They probably thought we can finally be done with our uh, almost a year of wandering and, and settle down in Canaan. So they send 12 scouts, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, to go investigate the land. Now, it's important. These, these scouts were, were leaders of their tribes. They were important people. And, and particularly, I want you to note two scouts, Caleb, the scout from Judah, and Hosea, also called Joshua, who's the scout from Ephraim. This is the same Joshua who's going to inherit leadership from Moses. Uh, and, and the name uh, Hosea and Yoshua, uh, which are the Hebrew names, are both very similar. Um, one of them, uh, Hosea, is sort of a, you can, you can think of it as like a tribal name, whereas Yeshua uh, is, is the, the name that means Yahweh saves. It's the same name that will be given to Jesus, uh, and, and, and Yeshua and is Jesus in Hebrew. Uh, Jesus is Yeshua in Greek. So uh, Joshua is the scout from Ephraim. Caleb's the scout from Judah. These are the two scouts that are going to bring a favorable report uh, that, that, yes, we can take this land. These are also the two tribes that will ascend to positions of leadership. Perhaps these two events are tied together. Perhaps that's more serendipitous. Uh, but watch Judah and Ephraim ascend to leadership as we read through the history of Israel. Now, note also that the grapes that the scouts return with are so huge that they need two men to carry the cluster on a pole. The inhabitants of the land are equally gigantic. Depending on your translation, the scouts either mention that they are Anakites or that they're offspring of the giants, uh, because Anak uh, is the Hebrew word for giant. Uh, there's no evidence that Anakites are a thing, uh, so it's likely that these are offsprings of giants, tying them into the Nephilim that we heard about in Genesis 6. The Nephilim are the people, uh, the, the demigods, the heroes of renown, who are the, the offspring of angels and, and human beings. Uh, and, and so the question that is put to the Israelites upon hearing this report is, do they trust that God would even still grant them victory now that they know these powerful foes are arrayed around the land, that there are fortresses around the land? And this is the question we need to ask ourselves regularly. Even if we're up against demigods, do we trust that God will deliver us from our foes, even if we're up against problems, the solutions to which we have no idea. Uh, do we trust that God will help us chart a way through the wilderness to the land of promise? Do we trust that God's going to remain faithful? Or do we try to seize the reins of power, believing that the people that God has entrusted with leadership shouldn't be trusted? 
Now we're going to see how the Israelites respond to these questions and what consequences come from that response in the coming chapters in the book of Numbers. Now that's all for Leviticus 24 and Numbers 10 along with uh, excuse me, number six, along with 10 through 13. Next week, we won't skip around at all. We'll read straight through numbers 14 through 19, and we'll reckon with more stories of rebellion in the wilderness. The next time we'll skip around is about halfway through May, once we get to the book of Deuteronomy. It's my prayer that God would bless you in your reading of Scripture.